critical thinking has always been considered a threat to society. This is just, as it were, a gross manifestation of that fact. If we go back to the life of Socrates 2,400 years ago or so, we find mm -hmm. that Socrates was in fact put to death for educating the youth as well as mm -hmm. presumably not believing in the received religious beliefs of the day. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that critical thinking is dangerous is something that is a thread yeah. throughout human history. And in fact, critical thinking is a threat to the powers that be. Because when the people think critically, when we ever reach a point where the people in mass are thinking critically, we will have a very different kind of world than the one that we have today. And this would yes. be threatening to the people that are in power. And there's another connection here, and it's it has to do with the idea that, in fact, we don't want critical thinking because it's connected to science, and science will lead us away from, again, received religious beliefs. Welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better, where we explore how you can apply insights from visionary leaders and the most provocative philosophers and scientists of our time to make your life and our world a better place. Here's your host, author and speaker, Paul Gibbons. Welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better. Thanks to everyone who tuned into our first two episodes. This is now episode three on critical thinking. Our first episode, if you haven't listened to it, had Jeremy Suri, famous historian, talking about his book, The Impossible Presidency. And our second episode had Parag Khanna, author of many books, but the one that we discussed most was Technocracy in America. Today, we have something truly special. But first... Thanks to everybody who has rated our podcast on iTunes. One listener said that he wished history had been taught in his high school the way Jeremy discussed it during our podcast, which my response is, well, don't we all? For me, history when I was in high school was dull as dishwater, and now I find it one of the most fascinating things to consider and read about and pursue. At the end of this show, I'm going to be giving away four copies of our guest, Dr. Linda Elder books to people who review our podcast. So don't forget to rate and review the podcast. And I will tell you how to win the books at the end of the show. If you travel in educational circles these days, it's hard not to hear about critical thinking. It seems like a logical answer to information age problems we face today. Fake news, post-truth politicians making stuff up, false ads for financial or pharmaceutical products, bogus health claims. Critical thinking seems logical. It seems common sense. Being able to consider and evaluate information, identify biases, examine the logic of arguments, tolerate ambiguity until the evidence leads to better decisions. It seems trivial sometimes. Does that miracle superfood do what it claims? But sometimes, of course, it can be life-saving, as with Steve Jobs' decision to pursue alternative therapies rather than surgery for his ultimately fatal prostate cancer. The problem with critical thinking is that, well, twofold. A, most people think they do it already. 
So most people think they scream and rant and criticize what they hear on cable news or on Facebook or in the newspaper or what they read in books and movies. Well, criticism isn't critical thinking, and we'll find out more about that in a minute. And the second problem with critical thinking is most teachers think they already teach it. After all, what teacher wants to believe that they encourage students to simply parrot back textbook knowledge? Of course, we teach them to think critically. That's, of course, what I've been doing with my entire career. And uh, they may or may not be right. We're going to explore that with today's guest. We have today an expert in critical thinking, educational psychologist, Dr. Linda Elder, who spent an entire career thinking, writing, and teaching about critical thinking. She is the president of the Foundation for Critical Thinking and executive director of the Center for Critical Thinking. For 38 years, the Foundation for Critical Thinking has been working towards the advancement of critical societies. It's a not-for-profit organization that seeks to promote change in education and society through the cultivation of fair-minded critical thinking, thinking which embodies the intellectual virtues of empathy, humility, intellectual perseverance, integrity, and intellectual responsibility. Dr. Elder has co-authored four books, including Critical Thinking Tools for Taking Charge of Your Learning and Your Life. She now lives in Santa Barbara, California, the lucky Dr. Elder, and enjoys art, painting, cats, tennis, swimming, and biking in the amazing California sun. Linda, welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better. I really appreciate this. You know, this is great work. And I, this is a culmination, of course, of uh, not just your life's work, but also the life's work of your uh, partner and business partner or partner and enterprise partner, uh, Dr. Paul. And so I guess looking back 30 years, have we come a long way since then? Or would you say this is a journey that's just beginning? Or, or what kind of historical perspective might you well, offer people on this? Critical thinking really began to emerge as a term back in the early 80s and has built as a term in education and then in societies. And there's more of a conversation now around critical thinking as the world begins to change and become more complex, which was something that those back in the 80s, like Richard Paul and Robert Reich, were talking about. In other words, back in the 80s, people were saying, the world in the future is going to be very different. It's going to be more complex. You're going to have to have, we are going to have to have higher levels of thinking to survive in this rapidly changing world. Mm -hmm. And we, we ourselves now, all of us are experiencing, let us say, the throes of this. And so what I think we're experiencing now is more of an international movement, albeit quite small. There is a thread There is a thread of people throughout the world who very much want critical thinking and are doing very important work to advance this. So we're a long way from achieving the goal of uh, rational societies throughout the world, but there are pockets of wonderful things throughout the world. Most people think that they think critically already. The most professors and teachers think that they teach critical thinking to students. So Linda, are they right? Well, they're partially correct and they're partially incorrect. Every human being does some critical thinking. And by that, I mean that that each of us makes some critical thinking moves. Anytime you ask a question that shows that you are trying to clarify someone else's thinking, then that's critical thinking. That's an example of. Anytime you bring in relevant information, that's an example of critical thinking. So 
all humans do some thinking at a high level in some ways, and uh, relatively speaking. And so, so everybody makes some critical thinking moves, but we are missing an explicit awareness of the tools of critical thinking largely in human societies, so that though we are engaging in critical thinking to some degree, we know that we need to be engaging in critical thinking in a much higher degree. And we can also look at our graduates from our colleges, universities, high schools, graduate programs, we can see glaring deficiencies in critical thinking skills, abilities, and traits. Cool. So sometimes we do it, Sometimes we don't. When we do do it, we're not necessarily doing it consciously. And most people are doing it unaware of, if you want, the suite of tools that are available to them that would help them. And when we test and try and test for our people doing this in society, we find that, by and large, we're not doing it nearly as much as we think we are. Correct. And the evidence shows that again and again. Yeah. Right. Right. So what is it then? So what's the stuff we're not doing then? Well, I think that one of the main problems that we face in human societies is that we don't understand the role that reasoning is playing. We don't recognize ourselves as reasoners. We don't understand that there are parts to our reasoning that we can analyze and that we can assess. We are thinking, as it were, by hit and miss. We learn from one another, and maybe we think a little bit better in certain domains of our lives, but we lack these tools. So reasoning, though it is everywhere in human life, and though we can't get away from our reasoning, and though we are often victimized by our reasoning and by others' reasoning, we don't have a sense of what reasoning actually entails. So we don't have a conversation around reasoning. And for example, let me talk a little bit about what reasoning entails. Reasoning entails essentially what can be boiled down to eight elements. Whenever we reason, whether we're reasoning at the highest level or the lowest level of quality or somewhere in between, we are reasoning with a purpose or a set of purposes. So purpose is a part of reasoning. We also ask questions. We pursue information. We make inferences. Our thinking begins with assumptions based in concepts, and our thinking goes somewhere in terms of implications, and we come from a point of view. So the eight elements in brief are purpose, question, information, inferences, assumptions, concepts, implications, and point of view. And if we all understood these concepts and understood these parts of our reasoning, then we could do a better job of deconstructing reasoning in every part of human life. So let me see. So we've got our eight elements now. Now, sometimes, as I said to you, as we were chatting before the show, I teach critical thinking to graduate students who are MBA students. And we spend a ridiculously small amount of time doing it, and we introduce the eight elements. Now, I would say that students could parrot back to me the eight elements if I did them on a quiz or if I gave them a quiz, a multiple choice quiz that said which of these are in and which of these are out, which of these are critical thinking and which aren't. But I dare say that's a long way from them applying it in their life on day-to-day problems, whether it be at the grocery store or reading a product ad or reading a news article or reading a scientific paper, or reading an introduction to a financial product, or whatever it is, in their day-to-day lives. So I guess my question is, is that 
how do we get people to use the abstract models uh, that are foundational in, in, in critical thinking? How do we teach it so that they use it? Well, that's a good question because one of the things about critical thinking that's true is that I often say it's so easy, it's hard. That is, the fundamental concepts are basic, they're foundational, and as it were, easy to understand initially. The difficulty with anyone taking ideas seriously is how to get them to internalize the concepts so that then the concepts, as it were, live within them and transform them. It's like learning to play the violin. You can see a person highly skilled at playing the violin, and this person can hold the violin in a certain way, can explain to us what the playing the violin entails, can play a little for us, and it looks, it may look somewhat easy on the surface, but in fact, it's going to be quite difficult for us to learn to, to play this instrument. And the only way we can learn to play it is to internalize its essential foundations and then apply them over and over and over again, many thousands of times. Mm -hmm. And so people will hear things like, well, of course, there's purpose and reason. Yes, of course, I have a purpose in my marriage. And I could say, well, what is your purpose, though? And what is your purpose right now in this conversation? And what is anybody's purpose at any given moment? Are you using the term on a daily basis? Are you? Do you just say, yes, I understand purpose and thinking? Right. Very good. Good. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, think about the way that I used to teach it in my class or something like that. The way we teach it is exactly the opposite of how you teach critical thinking. So we teach someone a framework and expect them to parrot it back rather than ask them to think critically about the framework. Where does it work? How could I apply this? What are the flaws? What are the logic? What are the information that, you know, all of those kind of questions that we'd expect a, an inquisitive learner to ask? Well, right. Well, we've known for a very long time in terms of the research that parroting back is not the same as learning. And we now live in a, an educational world, which is just bombarding us with assessments ad nauseum. And these assessments are supposed to show whether and to what degree we are engaging or will engage in critical thinking and whether we have these skills or those skills. But any of these inauthentic assessments will not work to tell us whether and to what degree you will be rational at any given moment in real life. And that's what we really need to know. Do you bring these tools to your marriage? Do you bring them to your civic decisions that you make? Do you bring these to your, to your family? Do you bring these into the workplace? Do you really live these concepts? That's, that's what we need sure. to know. And we can't get at this through these tidy parenting sorts of exercises. Yes, yes. So I know there's more to critical thinking than just the elements. I know that there's skills and there's a mindset dis or dispositions. Why don't you outline for listeners what the skills or what the mindset dispositions are in your critical thinking model? Yes, let me explain. I've talked a little bit about the elements of reasoning. These we need to have in order to analyze our thinking, to take apart our reasoning. And then when we've uh -huh. taken it apart, we also need to then assess it. So I know what your purpose is. I know what information you're using. I know what your inferences are. But then how do I assess your inferences, your judgments? How do I assess the information that you're using? Here we need intellectual standards, such as clarity, accuracy, relevance, depth, breadth, 
logicalness, fairness, significance. These are some of the essential intellectual standards that we teach on a daily basis in a, at an entry level. And so when we put together the elements and the standards, then we begin to get skills. So can you accurately represent an argument that someone is making? You see, that's a, that's a skill. Can you bring in relevant information? And then are you excluding relevant information that you don't want us to see. See, it gets complicated very quickly. And in terms of the dispositions, one of the the unique parts of our approach is that from the very beginning of our work, almost 40 years ago, we began to advance not just critical thinking, but in fact, fair-minded or ethical critical thinking. And when you bring in the fair-mindedness component, you bring in intellectual virtues such as intellectual empathy, intellectual integrity, intellectual humility, confidence in reason, intellectual perseverance, and intellectual courage, to name a few. So in critical thinking, as we're aspiring towards becoming better persons and more critical persons, We are going to be using the elements of reasoning, the intellectual standards, as we aspire to these intellectual virtues. So so there's a whole lot to this. And I guess one of the questions is, I mean, I would imagine just understanding the elements and the mindset and the intellectual virtues and the intellectual standards, that by itself could take an entire semester in a college course. Is that the right way to teach it? Is it uh, you know, you want to dump all this, or is it best if you want woven through other curricula? So they're learning some of it in history, and they're learning some in English, and they're learning some in mathematics, and some in science. And so it's part of the curricula. So they're not learning about critical thinking in a context-free way, abstractly, but they're learning to apply it in each of the academic situations in which they find themselves. How is it taught, and, and how is it best taught? Well, I believe it's best taught using both approaches. That is, I believe that all people need access to the fundamental theory of critical thinking, and they need a course or two in learning that theory. Of course, when you're learning critical thinking theory, you're also going to be applying it to some questions. So there there has to be content or context that we bring with our initial teaching of critical thinking. But we also need critical thinking to be taught explicitly within all academic fields of study. And in fact, most academicians would say that they are teaching critical thinking. This is what this research repeatedly shows. And yet, what we find when looking at their actual coursework Often we find that the the faculty members themselves do think critically within the field, but it doesn't follow that they're fostering critical thinking in their students. And so we need to take critical thinking seriously within all domains of human thought, all academic fields, because all academic fields presuppose the foundations of critical thinking, even though they often themselves do not understand them explicitly. Yeah, by some time as a doctorate who's been a professor for 10 years, they ought to be able to, at least within their own domain, 
and I'm going to ask a question about that in a second. But within their own domain, they ought to be pretty excellent at it, I should imagine. But it doesn't transfer between domains. Is of course an interesting question. As someone who, who's a historian, who's a very adept critical thinker, who's a historian, does he apply that when he's reading an ad for a health product or for a financial services product or a news article? Well, that's true. Okay, so there are two, at least two questions in that. One is, to what degree do we transfer our critical thinking abilities from one domain to another? And in fact, I think the research shows that we're not very good at that. We're, we're, we're highly compartmental thinkers. And this explains yep. how people can do very horrible things to someone on the one hand and be kind and loving to someone else on the other hand. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. So that's an interesting, right. fascinating problem by itself, right? So we're, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're not integrated thinkers, and the best thinkers integrate their learnings and understandings across the domains of their lives. This is a very yes, yes. high-level skill set in critical thinking. But before that, taking, let's say, experts within a given field, if you, if you grant the normal distribution, the bell-shaped curve that statisticians will tell us about, then what you find is that with any field of study, I think most of the people will cluster around the center, somewhere around mediocre. Right. But within every field, there will be people functioning at the highest level. There will be the most progressive thinking. And these are the people who are often critics of the field, and therefore they're ostracized by the masses within the profession. Mm-hmm. And they're also thinking at a much uh, higher level about the questions within the field. So within any field of study, there are going to be better and worse thinkers. And those that are thinking at the highest levels are the ones that are engaging in higher levels of criticality, either implicitly or explicitly. Absolutely. So let's take it take it slightly away from the academic realm. I'm a consumer. Say I have a master's degree in marketing or something like that. I'm raising a family. I have a job. How might I approach, say, an article? Say I read an article online. Mm-hmm. It's one of my interests in the moment. At the moment, is news literacy. Say I, I read an article online. How would a critical thinker approach that, and what difference might that make? Well, it can make a big difference. First of all, let's just take the elements in the standards and make a few moves here. So if I'm reading an article, the first thing that I need to understand, whether it's an article online or anywhere else, I'm reading the product of someone's reasoning. And if I understand that, then I know that there are eight elements. The person had a purpose. They were asking questions. They used information. They made inferences. And I want to know what those eight elements are. So I can use, I can say, what are the concepts that are guiding their thinking? What assumptions are they using? So I can use the elements of reasoning and then I can assess those elements by asking myself, first of all, is the argument even clear? If I don't understand what the person is saying, I'm not sure it's worth my, worth my time. Is it muddled? Is it sort of all over the place? Is it illogical? Does the conclusion not actually follow from the premises You see, I can make all these moves. I can say, yes, this is information. This is good information that's being included. It's relevant, but what information is being excluded that's also relevant? Right. So it sounds like there's some elements which are formal philosophical logic in there as well. That's that's some of the some of the skills are formal philosophical logic. 
Well, I use I actually I used the the concept of premises and conclusions. I don't usually do that because I don't I don't myself tend to use much of what is considered traditional philosophy in my own critical thinking. But there's a place for some of these concepts. But basically I think people should focus on the reasoning itself, understand any written piece as a product of reasoning and therefore coming from some point of view and not some other points of view. I want them also to bring in the intellectual virtues. I want them to ask themselves, okay, what do I really know about what I'm reading? What do I not know? What is the person saying that I think I can take to be true for sure? And what needs to be questioned? Am I engaging in intellectual empathy? Am I granting the person time to even give me their argument before I tell them why they're wrong. Am I open? Right. That's a very important point today, isn't it? Well, it's it's essential today because often we're, we're, we're lost in which side are you on politically rather than what is the actual real issue and what is the, what's the best way to, to answer the question. I doubt I have any listeners, and I'd include myself, unfortunately, within this, who prejudge an article or a news story or an advertisement, depending on on the source. Uh, we are already reading it uh, with a point of view of, you know, uh, either a highly skeptical, cynical point of view or a, an open. The stuff that we agree with, we read with a point of view that's too open or too uncritical, and with stuff that we start, you know, something from a news station that's opposite of our point of view, we start the opposite way. And that's not critical thinking. So that sort of prejudgment of argument before, in a sense, giving it a fair, that's the fair mindedness you talk about, I think, partly. Well, yes. And it's easy for us to err on either side, you see, because we're eminently fallible as humans. Mm. So no matter how well you understand the theory of critical thinking, you will still often be biased. You'll, you'll still often be prejudiced. You'll still often fail to make good judgments. Why is that? It's because it's not easy always to figure out what is the best approach. Most of the issues that we face now that are pressing upon us are, are highly complex. Sure, sure. Of course they are, yes. And if we got the best thinkers together in the world to address those questions, we probably wouldn't be able to answer them because we wouldn't even agree on the questions themselves. So critical yes. thinking doesn't doesn't make things more simple. It makes things more clear and it helps us take things apart more easily and to use better logic in reasoning things through and to make very fundamental but very easy moves like as I said before, what information are you leaving out, though? You see, any a second grader can ask that. Yes, but, indeed. And so the, con- the human mind is complex. I have a question about at what age, but before I go on to that, how would a listener know they weren't thinking critical? How do you build in this sort of self-diagnosis for people? Is it awareness of cognitive biases or awareness of pre-existing prejudices? Or is that enough? How do we begin to get people to, because the first step, if you wanted this to be society-wide, 360 million Americans and 1.7 billion Chinese, you know, say the world would be a better place. We'll grant that the world would be a better place if everybody did this more. I don't think that's a very difficult argument at all. So say we think that's the case, then the first step is going to be people have to self-diagnose. So other people aren't going to learn to think critically if they think they already think 
critically, I don't imagine. So how do people self-diagnose? How would my listeners self-diagnose and say, gosh, I'm really not thinking critically, even though I think I am? Oh, well, first of all, many people are uninterested in, in self-diagnosing. So you have to have, as our late founders said, you have to have an abiding interest in the problematics in thinking. And I would argue <laughs> in your thinking. So first of all, that's presupposed. So you come to the table with some intellectual humility, because if you don't have that, then you come with the opposite, which is intellectual arrogance, which means you already know it all, which means we can't help you. But if you begin with the idea that, you know, like Socrates said, I know nothing, maybe, maybe that's what you need to begin with. I know nothing, which is, he didn't mean literally, but it was uh, the idea so what I would say that we need beyond some hefty dose of intellectual humility to begin with is we need a cohesive theory of mind. And mm-hmm. you get the cohesive theory of mind through understanding reasoning and the elements, the standards and the virtues that we've discussed. You also need to understand and to have a cohesive theory for the barriers to critical thinking, for self-diagnosis. And here I mean specifically everything that falls under the category of egocentric thinking and everything that falls under the category of sociocentric thinking. So in our dynamic interactive model, we bring in you know, the positive side, the elements, the standards, and the traits, and then the negative side, the barriers, egocentric and sociocentric thinking. Now, these are complex concepts, but on the but all of us have a sense of them, both of these concepts intuitively. So selfishness is a form of egocentric thinking. Arrogance, intellectual arrogance, thinking that you know more than you know. These are examples of egocentric thinking. We see these all around us every day in our interactions with people. We also have a sense, all of us, of groupthink, that together people working in groups often don't think very well because they're Mm -hmm. influenced uh, one another in all kinds of ways that social scientists have been uncovering for us for decades now. But what is a mistake is to take something like, let's say, bias theory and think that that's all you need to have to self-diagnose. First of all, bias theory is not one theory. It's multiple concepts within a specialty. And these specialties have grown up within the social studies area for, as I said, many decades. So what this means is that we're getting a lot of things thrown at us from the fields of research. But how do you bring that into a comprehensive theory of mind that you can use every day as you go through your complex world. And I think that's where we have to boil it down to fundamental concepts that we understand that will give us a lot of, let's say, power in the fewest number of concepts. So in other words, if I understand that I'm often, very often, egocentric, then I can say to myself, well, how am I being egocentric right now? I mean, am I talking too much so I'm not <laughs> letting anyone else get a word in edgewise? You see, am I, is it my way or the highway? Is it, is it, you know, my group is all, you know, more for my group. And if that means less for everyone else, well, that's all right too. You see, we have got to call ourselves on our own nonsense. We've got to we've got to pause in that moment of cognitive dissonance and say, you know, maybe I'm the one that's in the wrong here. Sure. These are some concepts that can help. 
Well, very good. So, I mean, let's say we could, um, so I'm imagining, and I don't know if this work has been done, there should be a, a sort of a staged model, a developmental model of critical thinking that starts with kindergartners. Our kindergartners should be able to, in the very elemental things, and very, there must be some stages of critical thought that are available to very young children. Uh, we would want a pedagogy that goes from K through 12, or actually K through far beyond 12, really, or something like that. So at every stage of the way, building on the foundations that you could teach kids that are kindergartners about asking good questions, understanding purpose, understanding evidence, how do I know what I know, you know, where is their doubt, where might I be wrong, all of these kind of self-directed questions. So is there a curriculum uh, for, for children that starts with a young age? Uh, you know, I think, who is it said, give me a child at the age of seven? It was the, it was the Jesuits, right? So, so maybe we need to start them young. Is that right? Yes. Let me let me just answer that. It's it's somewhat of a complex question. It's again, it's easy and it's difficult to answer. If you wanted to teach every human population to play tennis, yep. How soon would you start them? Well, you'd start seven, them as soon as you so could. Earlier. No, you, no. Yeah. If you wanted everyone to play tennis well, you'd start them. You'd start them as soon as they could hold a ball. They would be holding sure, sure, the yeah, ball. Yeah. So that Even could be early, at yeah. six months. It could be at one year. Yeah. Then they could throw yeah, the ball yeah. back and forth to you. Well, reasoning, <laughs> teaching people to reason at higher levels of quality is, in essence, equivalent to that. When do you, when do you begin asking your children questions that help them question the moves that they're making? This is critical right. thinking. Well, we do that when, as soon as we can. And we do it as often as we can, and we do it as well as we can, given that every single human being is individual and unique. And so I think one of the problems we have is, is the whole concept, the whole idea of levels of learning, grade levels. I think that that's problematic. We have competency standards that people can read in one of our thinker's guides. We, we detail those, but you can't just say, well, let's see, when do you introduce inferences? Well, I can introduce inferences at the kindergarten level, but yeah. the students would only have a little bit of understanding of what that means, and they would get a better understanding as we move through the grades, but we would be focusing on, as it were, all of the element standards and the traits to the degree that we could anywhere mm -hmm. we can in human life. So if you, let's say you're reading your children's story of the gingerbread man, well, what's the real deeper meaning of the gingerbread man? Is there one? Is there one that we can tap into? What was really happening? Well, the gingerbread man, first of all, is a, is a character that was created, not real, but he becomes real. And when he becomes real, then he's like a human. And now he's running for his life. And these people are trying to yeah. chase him and kill him and eat him. So yeah. this gives us an opportunity, this kind of work gives us an opportunity to ask good questions. But what is presupposed in this is that people, yeah. the teachers, the parents, the, the adults, it presupposes that they know how to ask good questions. Yes, it's one of these things that uh, in the world that we imagine parents are asking their children, helping their children up the ladder from a very young age, just as someone who's a, an athlete is throwing a football with his child in the backyard when they're two years old, you know, we'd want our kids to begin to learn critically before school. But what you're saying, I think, is that we don't package up the curriculum and we don't learn inference in second grade and we don't learn purpose in third grade and we don't learn mm -hmm. assumptions and evidence in fourth grade, that it's learned much more holistically than that. I think that's one of the things you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. Just the way that you would teach tennis. 
you're teaching the same game, whether it's to first graders or to graduate students. Just, the game is the same, but you can't expect the same level of quality at every, quote, grade level. But as I said, I would go further, nor can you expect it person to person. In other words, if I take a, stu- a group of students or you take a group of students that you've taught, well, if you're teaching 30 students, every one of those students is thinking at a different level. Right, every one of those right. students is thinking something different. And we have to embrace that if we're going to understand how to teach reasoning and skilled reasoning. Very good. Let me finish with a couple of questions. One question is slightly more provocative. It's slightly more political. I, in doing my research on critical thinking, I, I saw that the Texas legislature actually put a codicil in one of their provisions that they didn't want schools to teach critical thinking. So, in fact, I, I don't think it passed. I think they were considered trying it rather than actually trying to ban critical thinking. How is critical thinking a threat, or how did these legislators imagine that critical thinking might be a threat to society? Well, critical critical thinking has always been considered a threat to society. This is just, as it were, a gross manifestation of that fact. If we go back to the life of Socrates 2,400 years ago or so, we find Mm -hmm. that Socrates was, in fact, put to death for educating the youth as well as Mm -hmm presumably not believing in the received religious beliefs of the day. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that critical thinking is dangerous is something that is a threat throughout human history. And in fact, critical thinking is a threat to the powers that be. Because when the people think critically, when we ever reach a point where the people in mass are thinking critically, we will have a very different kind of world than the one that we have today. And this would be threatening to the people that are in power. And there's another connection here, and it has to do with the idea that, in fact, we don't want critical thinking because it's connected to science, and science will lead us away from, again, received religious beliefs. So I think the answer to your question really is deeply connected to to the life and the thinking of Socrates as I, you know, unpack this. So we're going to be raising uh, in, in the world that you and I imagine together, because I think we're both advocates for it, we're going to be raising a generation of subversives, and that's going to be a good thing. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's probably that's too, a, that, too that's a, way of putting it. No, it's a good thing. It's a good thing when we have high-level critics of society, but often skeptics are not high-level critics of society. They're just criticizers. And you can have vulgar thinkers on the right and on the left and everywhere in between. It's really not what your, your political views are. It's how you hold them. Right, indeed. And and part of the spirit of critical thinking is being able to understand another's views and another's reasoning and being able to put aside and have a dialogue. So this is actually enhances dialogue between different factions rather yes. than subtracts it, from. Exactly. And it opens up our ability to actually hear a point of view to which we are, let's say, opposed. And then we can hear it and maybe hear it to be moved by it rather than hear it to dismiss it. Yes, the the dueling tape recorders. <laughs> I'm going to listen long right. enough. I'm going li- to listen long enough to be polite, and then I'm going to say what I might always say to someone who thinks what this person thinks. Now, when we're thinking critically, we understand 
first that there will be disagreement, and we invite that. We need dialogical reasoning where we are openly able to freely discuss ideas. We need dialectical reasoning where we are in conflict and we're trying to work out that conflict. But in that process, we're not hating one another and wanting to destroy one another, wanting to kill one another. Rather, we can say, oh, that's very different. That's very unusual. I still respect Paul as a human being, but I disagree with his views. So that's all right. We, we need that world that we've, some of us have been trying to work towards, but we haven't made a lot of progress in that direction. Uh, not yet. No, I wonder how much progress we have made since Socrates' day. Before we wrap up, can you help listeners out with some resources? How can they find you? Which books could they read of yours? Which one would you go to first? And are there online courses or web-based resources for people who want to develop themselves along these lines? Yes. Well, first of all, our organization, the Foundation for Critical Thinking, is one of the oldest intellectual think tanks on critical thinking in the world. We are advancing freedom of thought and freedom of speech. We have a number of resources for educators and anyone interested in critical thinking. We have two books for the general public, let's say, one, 30 Days to Better Thinking and Better Living, which gives you ideas that you can bring into your life every day in a fairly simple form. And the other is Critical Thinking Tools for Taking Charge of Your Professional and Personal Life. You can find both of these books and our other thinker's guides on our website at criticalthinking.org. We also have an online course for instructors and we offer other online courses at different times in the year. We have our international conference coming up next summer, which we hope you will all join us for. And we are designing now, developing a critical thinking cafe, which will be a cyber experience, a membership program for those who want to go deeper in critical thinking and bring these ideas into their lives on a daily basis. So that will be coming in early next year. So join us at criticalthink.org, become a member. You'll be able to read my news, my uh, weekly letters to our community. And we hope that everyone will continue to do what you are doing, what they are doing, what all of us are doing to advance fair-minded critical thinking in whatever ways we're doing it. Very, very good. So I'm going to direct people to the Foundation for Critical Thinking. I'm going to give away... Which book should I be giving away to listeners who rate the podcast? Which one do you think is going to be the one that they'd appreciate most if they wanted a, a really great introduction to this? I think you should give away the 30 Days to Better Thinking and Better Living book because that can well, get that, people started That's the one right I'll away. give away. Well, I'd like you to put me on the team, if you will. You know, I don't know whether I'll come to your conference next summer or whether I'll take one of your online courses or whether this is just a beginning of a series of talks between you and me or or however. But, uh, you know, I think this stuff's really important. The reason I was attracted to getting you on the on the show, Think Bigger, Think Better, was, of course, I'm writing a book on fake news and truth wars and post-truth politics and and mistruths and advertising. And uh, critical thinking is, of course, one of the things that I keep stumbling over over and over as being one of the answers to some of the dilemmas we face ourselves in the information state in which we live today. And so I'm thrilled to have you and consider me a member of the team, consider me a supporter. I look forward to ongoing dialogues between you and me. And I want to thank you for your time today very much. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for throwing your weight in with ours. All, all of our energy matters collectively. And I very much appreciate your taking the time to focus on this important topic.
Thanks, Linda. Thank you. In addition to Dr. Elder's books on critical thinking, one of which I'm giving away to people who rate the podcast on iTunes, there are many, many great new books on the topic. One that I think 100% of educated and interested individuals should read sometime in their life is Thinking Fast and Slow by Nobel winner Daniel Kahneman in this engaging, interesting, passionate rendition of his career's worth of research. Daniel talks us through the errors we make that we are blind to and has practical suggestions for how to counter those. You'll find a link to the book on my website in the show notes. I've also reached out to Dr. Kahneman to get him on the show. Another great practical book, even more practical book on thinking is The Organized Mind by Daniel Levitin. The book talks about information overload, how intention and memory work, how practically to organize our work, our time, our social world, business, and domestic lives. Again, find a link to Daniel Levitin's book, The Organized Mind, in the show notes. To celebrate the launch of the show, and thank you all for listening, I'm going to be giving away books, lots and lots of books. All you have to do is leave a review in iTunes. We're going to raffle off a book every single week for 12 weeks. So head on over to paulgivens.net slash iTunes to get easy-to-follow directions and let me know the title of your review to make sure that you're entered to win. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Think Bigger, Think Better. Great ideas are great, but this isn't gospel. Share your critical thinking in the comments. Where do I disagree? What insights were most powerful? If you got value, don't forget to share the value by sharing the podcast. Finally, to get information on book and blog releases and new video content, head over to paulgibbons.net and join the community of thinkers talking about using science and philosophy to make our world a better place.